It was a number of years ago that a couple of psychologists from the University of Michigan conducted a fascinating, I think, study on fear. Uh, Volunteers were fitted with an electrode cap. (laughs) Sign me up, right? The, The point was to analyze brain activity in response to winning and losing on a computer simulated betting game. So the way it worked is that with each bet, the medial frontal cortex would show increased electrical activity within milliseconds. Well, what they discovered was that the medial frontal negativity showed a larger dip after a loss than the medial frontal positive positivity showed in terms of a gain with a win. In other words, this was their conclusion. Losses appear to loom larger than gains. Losses appear to loom larger than gains. And therefore, what happens is there is, there is this aversion to loss, right? Uh, of a certain magnitude, it's greater than the attraction to gain of the same magnitude. Now, I, I'm telling you this because I, I think this helps to explain why so many people I meet choose to live life not to lose. They play the game of life not to lose. Now, for those of you who are March Madness people, you and I both know in the sports world, if you ever get to the point that you play not to lose, it almost guarantees you will what? You will lose. Whoever comes out on top of of the championship, right, that I'm enjoying right now watching, it won't be because they played to lose. It will be because they played as though they have Nothing to lose. And I'm telling you, as followers of Jesus, we don't play not to lose. We get to play with nothing to lose. And if you ask me, how could that be? Luke chapter 12 would be a significant part of the answer that I would give you. And that is where we're going to be today in Luke's story. So I'm really glad that you have chosen to be here today. I want to welcome everybody if you are at one of the campuses today or maybe uh, joining us online. We're, we're kind of in that spring break season where people are coming and going. Um, but I want to thank you for taking some time for us to be together today. We have learned to appreciate Dr. Luke's very strategic and purposeful recording and arranging of content. 
I got to tell you, never before, never before have I so much appreciated how Luke writes and how he arranges. And there's just a, a strategy. There's an intent behind it all. And so today, I want you to just as we start, hear the theme of Luke chapter 12. So I'm just going to read a little bit to you. All right. Let me show you what I mean. Verse four. I tell you, my friends, do not be, what's the word? Afraid. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. All right. So we're talking about dying here. And, and we would go, okay, there, there's, there's something to that. We, we get it that people fear. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Don't be afraid. Let's skip to verse 11. When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers, and authorities. Now, in this particular case, it's because they're following Jesus. So you're brought before the the rulers. Do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. And then one more, verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Let me see if I can give us um, just a quick summary, perhaps, of what we are taking in in this first part of Luke chapter 12. We tend to fear. We tend to fear. What do we fear? We fear death. I mean, most people who've ever breathed at some point, right, there's, there's this fear of what if and what is it, but what this chapter declares is, listen, you don't have to fear death when you know God, right? He, he can keep you out of hell. He can, which is, by the way, some part of what takes place after death, right? He, but, but no, you don't, you don't have to fear death. Sometimes we fear value. Does does anybody even know me? Does anybody care about me? And the language is God does. He knows the details of your life. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He loves you. Sometimes we fear failure. He's like, when, when you find yourself in that situation that suddenly you have been, right, drug in front of the authorities, you're, you're in trouble because you have, you have been declaring, right, that you follow Jesus and suddenly I'm faced, am I going to be able to handle this pressure? Am I going to know what to say? Am I going to be able to do what I need to do? I fear this failure. And he says, look, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit himself will give you what to say. You don't have to be afraid. And then last, it's like we all have this fear at times of need. It's like, will I have enough of what I need? And if we don't believe that we have such a need, I would simply point back to the last year where there were moments 
that there seem to be shortages of certain things. And people acted like we needed it to breathe. The very idea that we might not have everything that we need. And he's like, does God not feed the birds? And does not God not clothe the flowers? Then he certainly knows what you need. It is clear in each case of potential fear, God becomes the answer for don't be afraid. But I'm going to raise one more question here. It's really where I want to hang out today. My question is, what if, though, there is actually one fear that drives all the other fears? What if there's actually one fear? I'm going to call it the the deepest fear. I'm going to call it the foundation, perhaps, of all the other fears and When I tell you what it is, I think it helps to explain how we can even claim to know God and yet still at times be crippled by fear. I think it's why Luke saved it for last. I think it's why he listed all the other ones and then he's going to get to this one. What we do with this fear is either going to promote the other fears in our lives or it's going to prohibit the other fears in our life. But what we do with this one affects all the rest. So let me show you what I'm talking about when we arrive at verse 32. Here's what he says. One more time. Do not be Afraid. Little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Okay, what is that about? I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I think this is about. This is about Jesus wanting to eliminate the fear that I think lies beneath under all the other fears that we face. He wants to eliminate the fear that God is not the kind of God who really wants to be good to his children. And when we hear that, I think we immediately go, well, I'm not afraid of that because God's good. I'm not afraid of that because God's good. After all, we sing that God is good, right? We sing songs about the fact that he's a a good father. We we, we sing and we talk about it all the time. But I'm telling you, when, when God started searching my heart on this this week and I began to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, if I really believe that to the fullest, will I really fear some of these other things? But the truth is I do fear these other things sometimes because our tendency sometimes is that we actually tend to see God more like an authoritarian, if you will, who puts up with us. And so we try to keep the rules and whatever you do, just don't tick him off. Because our fear is that he really doesn't down deep want to be good, gracious, generous to us because down deep he wants to be irritated with us and sometimes it's because we're irritated with us 
Sometimes even if we believe that God is good, we're just going to admit today that sometimes we feel like sometimes his goodness might be, might be constraining. Like it's just, it's what he has to do. It's what he's under obligation to do. It's almost like, maybe like a judge who really wants to send a prisoner to jail, but the judge can't do it because he's been maneuvered by a clever attorney who's, who's backed him into a corner on some technicality of the court. And he's got to dismiss the charges and sometimes that's exactly, I think, how we view God. We fear that, that he's, he's good toward us, but beneath the surface, he's angry. Always angry. He's like the Hulk. That's his secret. He's always angry. Does he really want to be good to us? And just in case you are dismissing, like this question that I'm raising, I'm going to ask you another question. What was the first lie in the garden? What was the first lie that the enemy pitches to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? God knows if. In other words, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. It looks like he's giving you that which is good, but is he really? Is he really? Is this really what's best for you? Or is, is he just playing the game here, right? If here's how big, the, if we don't get right who God is, we will end up operating in a relationship with him that is based more on fear than it is love. We've got to get who he is. And that's what I believe verse 32 is all about when Jesus makes this statement. He is being incredibly intentional. Every single word is absolutely precise because he wants us to know who God is is so let's zoom in let's zoom in on it and see what he actually says here take a look do not be afraid little flock for your father has been let's start here pleased pleased to give you the kingdom and with that little word, Jesus is making clear, look, here we're talking about the heart of God. We're talking about what makes him glad. This is not just a, a verse that tells us what God will do or what God has to do. This is telling us what he's pleased to do. It's a word that means delight. This is what God takes joy in. This is, this is what moves his heart. In other words, God is not just acting generous toward you, but he really has some other motive. No, Jesus is clear. God is acting here out of freedom. God's not being generous while all the while what he really wants to do for you is bring judgment. 
No, he's not under constraint here. He, he, he's not doing something that he doesn't want to do. He's acting out of his deepest delight, his joy, his desire to give the kingdom to his little flock. This is the kind of God that he is. This is what he delights in. Let's keep going. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. I love that. Not your principal, not your employer, not your parole officer. Your father. Your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Jesus is intentional. Now, here's the problem we run up against when we read something like this out of Scripture. Not every one of us have been blessed to experience an earthly father whose heart looks like God's. Some of us have dealt with fathers whose hearts look really nothing like God's. And I'm saying that's a part of why we struggle with this fear. That's a part of why some of us wonder that even though God declares that he's a good father, does he really want my good? Because my experience has been that I have had other people say they are father, right? But they didn't actually want my good. Matthew chapter 17 tells us a story about a day that Jesus and his disciples are in a place called Capernaum. And the collectors of the tax, we're told, came to the apostle Peter and their question to him is, hey, does, does Jesus pay the temple tax? And it's funny to me because Peter answers yes, and then he's going to go home and talk to Jesus about it. I kind of like that. So he says yes, and he's headed home to talk to Jesus. And it says that when Peter enters the house, Jesus actually brings up the topic. You got to love that. I've been telling you all along, he knows. He knows even before you bring it up. And so the question Jesus asked Peter is, Peter, from who do the kings of the earth collect taxes? Do they collect it from their own children or from those outside? And the answer that Peter gives is from those outside, which leads Jesus to say that's exactly the right. The children, they are exempt. The children, they are free. Now here's the point. The point is, when it comes to God and his kids, they are not the ones who stand under the burden of the law. His kids are free. They're free. Now, I'm going to translate this into something that, that I am blessed to see right now. You know what it's like when you see a little child who truly looks free? 
You know what I'm talking about? A, a little child who operates in the context of, 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 his, of his family, of his father, like he's free. We got a little dude running around our family right now. He looks like he's free. He smiles most of the time. He plays. He's free. You know why he's free? He's got a daddy who protects him. He's got a daddy who provides for him. He's got a daddy who guides him. And you know what that leaves for him? He's free. And he enjoys the blessing of being beneath the umbrella of a a daddy who, who just is truly father to him. I'm saying the fatherhood of God means freedom for his kids. Man, I'd like to hang out there a while, but we gotta keep rolling. Let's go. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to, here's the next word, give you the kingdom. Not sell to you, not trade to you, not not so that you can earn it, but he delights to give you the kingdom. Since we're talking sons and fathers here a little bit today, I'm going to tell you that my father, my biological dad, is ridiculously generous toward me. Ridiculously generous toward me in every way in his life. Now don't translate that as though he didn't teach me how to work hard, because he did. He taught me the value of hard work. He taught me how to never give up. He taught me what sacrifice looks like. He taught me what delayed gratification looks like. Uh, my, My point is, all those difficult lessons, he got those to me. What I want to make sure we understand is it is, it is possible to teach the difficult lessons and be ridiculously generous. My dad did that in an incredible way, but my heavenly father does it in a perfect way. Long time ago, I heard somebody explain it this way. It's like the difference between a, a spring of water and a water trough. We, we read about Jesus being the water of life, right? He quenches the, the well, it's, it's like understanding the difference between a spring and a trough. A spring is self replenishing, right? A spring flows and it overflows and it supplies to others. A watering trough, you gotta fill it up with water which means there has to be a pump to get water into the trough or there has to be buckets, right, that that gets water into the trough. So here's the question. How do you serve? How do you serve a trough, 
right? How do you declare the greatness of a water trough? The way you declare the greatness of a water trough is you work really hard carrying buckets to pour the water into the trough so that it then can provide water. But how do you declare the greatness of a spring? The way you declare the greatness of a spring is you get on your knees and you lap up the water that flows freely until your thirst is quenched so that you can get up and then go from place to place and tell everybody what you have found. I've found water to drink. How do you really declare the greatness of God? I'm going to remind you today that God is not delighted by the resourcefulness of our trough-filling assembly lines. He is delighted when broken people kneel to drink at the spring of his grace. Because this is what he does. It is not earned. It's who he is. He delights to give. We're building. Let's keep going. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, some of us know it means Psalm 23, right? Right? The, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want, right? He, he's the good shepherd. Jesus says the good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep because he has to. No, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I choose to lay it down. I have the power to lay it down and the power to Take it up again. Do you get the truth that the Father is not reluctant or resentful in the gift of giving his Son? And the Son is not reluctant or resentful in the gift of his own life. This is what the shepherd does for his flock. And then there's another little word attached to this. Don't be afraid, little flock. I like that. I like that. I think that word little has at least two purposes. One purpose, I believe it's, it's a term of affection. Uh, It's a term of affection. It's like, it's like what I might say to, to my, my grandkids, right? If, hey, hey, don't, don't be afraid, little one. Don't be afraid, little one. What am I saying? I'm saying, I get it that you're in danger. I get it that you are small and I get that you are weak. But what I'm promising you is that with all my power, I will take care of you because you are precious to me. I think that's part of what little means. But it also means God's goodness to us is not dependent on our greatness. We are little in size and strength and wisdom and righteousness and love. If God's goodness to us depends on our greatness, we're in trouble. But good news, that's the point. It doesn't, and so we're not. His love doesn't depend on our greatness, and so we're not in trouble when he is our father. And that leads us to one more word. 
Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. Be careful here. He does not promise money. He does not promise fame. Everybody's going to like you. He very clearly says they won't. He does not even promise security in this life. That's not a promise that he makes. There will be hardship. There will be persecution. What he promises, what he delights in, what he gives is the kingdom, which leads us to the giant question, what in the world is that? Well, don't overthink it in this sense. I mean, a a kingdom, right, is the domain where a king rules, When we apply that to God, we're talking about God's rule and reign. And so here's here's the statement that I want to give you. And I'm going to try to just do this either slow or multiple times because I so want this to sink deep into your soul today. This means, right, in the fact that he gives us the kingdom, this means that the all-powerful and unstoppable Rule and authority of the king of the universe will be engaged forever and ever on behalf of the little flock. Come on. Once we get that, what are we going to be afraid of? The all powerful. The unstoppable rule and authority of of not just a king, but the king of the universe. Suddenly this is engaged, and not just today, but forever and ever on our behalf. That is staggering. It's staggering that God would not only give it, but that he delights in this. Now, when it comes to the kingdom of God, there are different aspects that we read throughout Scripture. So there is, there is, I'm going to call it an eternal aspect in terms of when we think about the kingdom of God, there is one day our heavenly home, right? A, 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 a new Jerusalem, and he, he describes a, a heaven that we will be a part of forever and ever. There's also, in, the, in terms uh, that we read about in scripture, a millennial kingdom where there's going to be this thousand year reign on the earth where, where we're going to know he's the king and no other. It's, it's going to be unlike anything that, that's ever been experienced before. But do not be deceived here. There is also an immediate aspect of the kingdom, this spiritual kingdom with all the privileges of the inheritance of God. We enter into the joy of this kingdom because my father's heart delights. He is busy crafting such delight and joy in me. I enter into the love of this kingdom a love that exists between the Father and the Son. And the Bible says that that love is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I I enter into the peace 
of a kingdom. Now, this is bigger than just feeling peace in, in bad circumstances. This is about a change in status that happened between me and God, where once we were enemies, we're not enemies anymore. I am, I am his little flock, and now that does give me peace even when I'm in difficult circumstances. I chose not to put the following scripture just visually for you today, and part of that is because I just want you to hear it. And so I'm going to ask you to try for a few minutes as I just read through this. I want you to just ask God to help you to hear. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every, every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. He is purposefully making a statement that there are no limits to the blessing of God. Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Come on, if the son would die for you, if, the, if he would give his life for you, then surely he will give us everything that that death and resurrection has made possible in terms of blessing for us. Philippians chapter 4, and my God will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There's no lack ever, not in eternity, not in the millennium, right? Not now, whatever it is that we need, they come from the resources of a kingdom. He owns it all. One more, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That is just relentless with superlatives. Why? Because he's trying to get across the point. These are over-the-top resources. If the king, with all authority... If the king with all power, the king of the universe is engaging his entire kingdom on your behalf forever and ever, the question that remains is, what am I afraid of? Because God is not reluctant in his blessing. When I believe that, then I know how to see death differently, value differently, failure differently, my needs differently. No longer am I playing just not to lose. Suddenly, I'm playing with nothing to lose. And maybe you would say, Jeff, I wish I just had one good example of what you're talking about. I, w I wish there was just one good example of what this means. Well, Jesus must have known that you and I would ask that question because immediately following verse 32 is verse 33. You're going to love this. You ready? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's his point. When you believe 
that the entire kingdom of God is engaged for you. You can be generous. But if you don't believe that, and you believe that all that there is is what you have, then you will live in constant fear that you will always lose what you actually have and that you will never quite have enough. Hmm. That's what it looks like to live free. That's what it looks like to live within the kingdom where all resources engaged on your behalf. And so he says, look, live, live, act, be generous. And when you do, your heart will follow. Your heart will follow. We get this backwards. Jesus, your money knows where your heart goes. Always. Always. If this is true about God that your father is pleased to give you the kingdom, then this changes everything about my fear of death. Because what I understand now is that life is not just temporary. It is not just 70, 80, 90, 100 years, but life with God is eternal. A kingdom that is now and forever. And because it's given to be my, by grace, I don't fear. It changes my view of value, a search for value. Does anybody even know me? Does anybody even love? God does, because here's where we get this mixed up. God's love is proactive, not reactive. Our love tends to be reactive. It depends on how you treat me that tends to affect how I love you. That's not how, that's not how he loves. So when I have success, he loves me. And you know what I've discovered? When I fail, He loves me. When I have great faith, he loves me. And when I am afraid, he loves me. He loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what verse 32 is all about. Jesus is trying to say, can we just settle this once and for all? The way God loves is not like most of us love. His love is proactive. It is not reactive. He loves you because of who he is. And this is really who he is. So when it comes to my failure, man, this, this changes the game. My God just, he calls me to obey. It's not even based on the results. My, my, so my cure for failure is not actually always having success. Sometimes my cure for failure is how God works in my life when there appear to be failures. And I'm saying appear because sometimes we don't even read it right. There are, appears to be failures, but God continues to love me. God continues to use me. It builds an immunity to my failures. And you know what the immunity is? It's the love of God. It's the love of God. When it comes to my need, if I've got a God who operates in abundance and not scarcity, this is what, this is what God led me to wrestle with this week. There is nothing I need that God doesn't have more of than I need. 
Nothing. There's nothing that I need that God doesn't have more of than I need. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, little flock. Because your father, he is pleased, he is delighted, he is joyful to give you the kingdom. So, a couple of questions. But I'm going to frame the questions differently today. And I'm going to explain it before I give you the questions. When we face fear, we almost always think negatively. (laughs) What's the worst that can happen, right? How's this going to unfold? How's it going to come crashing down? When we deal with our fear, we almost always think negatively. That's part of what makes it so scary. That's where our mind goes. When we deal with fear, we almost always have this perception that what this is going to require is is just this, this enormous, monumental leap. Okay? And the bigger the leap, that's what makes it scary. So I'm framing the questions different today. These questions don't work without the talk that we just had. They don't. These questions work within the framework of a father who says to his little flock, don't be afraid because I am delighted. I am delighted to give you the kingdom. I am always working for good for you. Always. You don't ever have to question my motive. You don't ever have to question my action. I am always working for your good. Even when you can't see it, trust me, I'm doing your best. In that context, these are the questions that I want to pose to you today. In your fear that you're dealing with right now, what if something good happens from this? In other words, will you give yourself permission for a few minutes just to dream about what good might God be up to here? What good might God be up to for me? Even though I'm scared to death and I'm, I'm admitting it and I can go to God and say, hey God, honestly, I'm afraid here. What good might God be up to in this for you? What good might God be up to in this for somebody else? We don't have to ask, is he? The only question is, what does it look like? What is the good? That's where we're at. Not is he, because he's always. He's always good. He's always working for our benefit. So the question is, what's the good? Would you allow yourself perhaps to dream a little bit? What if something good is happening out of the fear that you're walking through? And then here's the second question. What's one step that you can take? I'm, I'm phrasing it that way. Because almost every time we feel, like, we feel like we've got to take this giant leap and that leap is scary to us, what if you just start with one step? For some of you today, that one step is to admit your fear. For some of you, that one step is to go to God and just be honest to say, God, 
this, this really is what I'm wrestling with. And maybe out of what you've heard today, you, you realize what really lies beneath that fear. For some of you, that one step may be that you need to let somebody else in on the fear that you're going through. Let somebody else who can also dream, because come on, we need one another to remind each other that God's good. We do. We need one another to remind us he's always good. Even when I can't see it, he's always good. Maybe your little step is to let somebody else in to start to pray with you, to start to dream with you about what's God doing here? What if? And what's your first step? Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father is delighted to give you the kingdom. I'm going to pray for you. And then um, today, you can just keep your seat wherever you are today. Um, and I want to just invite you to take in the song. Um, Jason and Peter actually wrote this song. And today, I just asked them, instead of even us just singing it, would they just sing it over us? So I'm going to pray for you. And then if you'll just allow them to sing this most remarkable truth over you, that we ask God to help us believe. God, I thank you that we don't have to pretend to be tough. We don't have to pretend that we always believe fully that our faith is never shaken. You already know. Just like when Peter came running back to the house that day, you, you already know the right questions that need to be asked. And God, I am so grateful that you gave us, God, this, this just incredible jewel, God, right in the middle of Luke chapter 12, that God, we might be intentional about dealing with the real fear that lies beneath all the other fears that we struggle with. God, don't let us run from this anymore. God, we don't want our fear to define our lives. God, help us to run to you. God, today I thank you for loving us, not for who we are but because of who you are, which in turn changes who we are. So God, for this, your little flock, I pray that you will give us ears to hear. God, I ask that you would open our heart today to this most remarkable truth. God, I pray that our faith might be stronger. God, I pray that our fear might have to run because you are great. You are great. And you love us. It's in the name of Jesus that I thank you. Amen.